0: Well, I'm going to bring up on the screen a a picture for you to look at for a minute. Just uh, take a look at this picture, make some observations, get a sense of what's uh, going on in this picture. This This is a prominent park in the city of Jerusalem. In the first century, it would have been located just outside of the walls of the old city. But as the city has grown, it's now part of Jerusalem proper. You can see it's a, it's a tree-lined, at least this time of year, lush, green park, cliff-lined valley. If you were to hike the trail that runs through the park, you'd see caves carved into the rock wall. You might even see some sheep or goats grazing. Other times, you might find Festivals set up near that prominent tree in the middle of the green space. Or as you continue north through the valley, you'd come across a a beautiful amphitheater where you might just happen to catch the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra performing. Eric Clapton actually was the first international act to perform in this park in 1989. And since 2015, it's been home to the Jerusalem Opera Festival. So it's a pretty busy urban center. But this valley has a curious history. Historically, it's been known as the Hinnom Valley. It was home to an amazing archaeological find in the 1970s. One part of this valley was an ancient burial ground, and there are some tombs built into the rock wall. And one day, a teenage boy who was working for archaeologists was sent into one of these tombs, to clean it for a photography session that was going to take place. But as a teenage boy, instead of cleaning, he decided to take a hammer to the floor. And a chunk of the floor came loose and opened up a large hidden chamber. And in that chamber, a number of valuable artifacts were recovered, but nothing more valuable than two small scrolls. And when I mean small, I mean like this wide. Two small scrolls. Scrolls that date to around the time of King Josiah, who I'll mention in just a minute. He reigned in Israel in the 7th century BC. When the scrolls were taken to a lab and carefully unrolled, they revealed the text of the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6. The blessing that God instructed Moses and Aaron to speak over the people. The blessing that I speak over you almost every week. Isn't that beautiful to think about? The same blessing that was spoken over God's people by Aaron was given to God's people in Jerusalem in the 7th century and is still given to God's people today, right here in Dickinson, North Dakota. But the Hinnom Valley has much more significance than just being home to an ancient burial ground full of archaeological artifacts. In Jeremiah chapter 7, we read about the history of this valley. Jeremiah writes these words, And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in fire. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but instead the valley of slaughter. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. So contrast this picture of this beautiful valley in Jerusalem with the picture that Jeremiah paints for us. The valley in which the people would go out to sacrifice their children to pagan gods. 2 Kings chapter 23 expands on this picture for us when King Josiah sets out to rid Judah of their idol worship. We read that he went to this valley or he sent his, his men to this valley to destroy the altars that were set up and instead turned it into a garbage dump. The place where the city would dump all of its refuse to be burned to be destroyed, a giant burn pit full of dead animals, rotting food, all sorts of other human waste in order to be burned. But what's most interesting and most significant about this place is its name. Our English translations use the phrase the Valley of Hinnom, but in Hebrew that phrase is Gehinnom, or in Greek, Gehenna. Now for some of you that might trigger something in your mind, many of you probably not. Gehenna in Greek shows up several times in our text today, and it's translated hell. This valley, the lush valley on the outskirts of the old city of Jerusalem, serves as the backdrop, the ancient example for Jesus' teaching on hell. The place of wicked child sacrifice turned smoldering repugnant garbage pit was the real life picture of the place of God's eternal wrath against sin that plays a prominent role in Jesus' rebuke and teaching that we encounter in our text for today. From Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. This is God's word to us. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Let's pray. Almighty God, these are difficult words. It was an uncomfortable conversation with your disciples, and it's uncomfortable for us today, and yet we believe that these words are your words. They are living, they are authoritative, and so we ask that you would use these words to convict us of our sin, to lead us to examine our hearts and our lives, drive us to the cross, where we meet the one who triumphed over sin and hell. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, today's text presents a number of challenges for the reader, and especially for the preacher. It's likely that these words of Jesus in these verses were part of a common set of teaching, part of the oral tradition, a collection of sayings and teachings that would have been frequently packaged together. This is thought to be true for a number of reasons, but a chief reason is that each of the independent Gospel accounts, at least the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, convey these teachings, these sayings, in a different context, in a different setting. So we can assume that this was something that Jesus circled back to time and again in his ministry. Jesus is discussing here what it means to be a disciple, and maybe more accurately, what it costs to be a disciple. And as mentioned, this conversation, I would say, is one of the most uncomfortable, one of the hardest-hitting conversations that we find in Scripture. We like to think of Jesus as that gentle, soft-hearted guy standing outside the door of your heart, knocking in the classic painting. We like the Jesus who talks about forgiveness and love and kindness. We like the idea of Jesus holding babies or cuddling kittens. We like the idea of Jesus as that father watching his children misbehave and sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, ah, shucks, boys will be boys. I was texting with a pastor friend of mine last week and something came up about what I was preaching. This was for last Sunday and I said, I I think I'll I'll preach Jesus. His reply was, are you going to preach the Jesus who talks about love and forgiveness or the Jesus... Who talks about judgment and hell. We all prefer the Jesus who talks about love and forgiveness over the one who talks about judgment and hell. Unless, of course, it's about hell for other people, for people I don't like, for people who disagree with me, then that's fine. Give them hell, right? But In our text today, Jesus is speaking to those who are following him. He's taking these common sayings, common teachings, and he's using them to confront disciples, to confront those who are following him. When he talks about hell, he's not talking about people out there. He's talking about those who were surrounding him. As we work our way through this interesting and uncomfortable conversation, I want to first look at the context of this conversation, and then we'll look at the content. Context and then content. First, the context of Jesus' uncomfortable conversation. If you've been following along in the gospel according to Mark, you'll notice that I'm skipping a few verses. And, and it's true that I won't be preaching those verses specifically or in, in depth, but they serve as the context, as the backdrop for our text for today. So we are going to cover them at least in summary Our text last week, from last Sunday, ended with James and Peter and John descending the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And when they rejoin the disciples, they find themselves in the middle of this crowd, and Jesus' disciples have been trying to cast a demon out of a possessed boy, but they're unable. And so Jesus steps in and heals this boy. Following that event, they leave there and they proceed through Galilee, And Jesus, again, teaches his disciples that he must die and that he will rise again. And Mark records for the umpteenth time that they still don't get it. They're afraid to say anything, though. But here's what's amazing. Jesus has just told them that he's going to die. He had previously told them that if they were to follow him, they must take up their cross, deny themselves, and they arrive in Capernaum. And they're presumably resting there, likely in the home owned by Peter's family. And Jesus says, hey, what were you guys talking about on our way here? And Mark chapter 9 verse 34 is such a sobering verse. Mark says they kept silent because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. These disciples who had spent the last couple years with Jesus, who had seen all the miracles, witnessed all the healings, three of whom had just been on the mountain as Jesus is hanging out with Moses and Elijah and heard the actual voice of God thunder from the cloud. These disciples are debating which of them is the greatest. Isn't that such a picture of humanity? They were posturing for greatness. They were trying to build a platform upon which they could be seen. They aren't in this giving their lives away for Jesus, but instead trying to climb the ladder, trying to get a leg up on one another. And Jesus confronts them and says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then John pipes up, maybe trying to redeem the disciples, maybe trying to impressed Jesus with their discernment and their wisdom and their leadership bravado, something like that. John says, Jesus, we saw someone who was casting out demons in your name and we, we tried to stop him because he's not following us. And Jesus says, don't stop him. The one who is not against us is for us. This man wasn't part of the inner circle. He didn't check the boxes that they thought that he should check. He didn't meet the requirements, so they just assumed that what he was, what he was doing was, was wrong. They were making themselves the gatekeepers, deciding who's in and who's out, evaluating others based on their own set of criteria, and they were so wrapped up in themselves and in their own Glory. They were so concerned about what this other guy was doing that wasn't glorifying them that they totally missed out on what he was doing. They were creating controversy while this guy was giving people their freedom, giving them new life in Jesus' name. Unbelief, ladder climbing, gatekeeping. These were the sins of the disciples between the Mount of Transfiguration and today. And so we could say that our text for today serves as a rebuke against ladder climbing, against gatekeeping that the disciples were engaged in. But but let's be honest for a moment, those sins aren't unique to the disciples. Is ladder climbing still an issue today? In many ways, all of us vie to be the greatest. In one way or another, we're, we're so quick to point out the flaws, the shortfalls, of another, those we perceive as our enemies, anything that will give us a competitive edge that will shine a more more friendly light upon us, we're quick to point those things out. In many ways, we constantly want to be gatekeepers, to determine who's in and who's out, to set the criteria by which people are accepted. That's the context. That's what lies behind jesus words for today now let's look at the content this content of jesus uncomfortable conversation i think this collection of sayings could be pretty easily divided into three areas of focus the first one is this in the form of a question how does your life impact others look at verse 42 if anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me, to stumble. It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Right out of the gate, Jesus gets uncomfortable, right? As he rebukes and confronts the ladder climbing, the gatekeeping, he reminds us that we are accountable for how we impact others. It's a little bit frightening, isn't it? Up until Macy was born, I worked... In ministry to teenagers and over those years I I was entrusted with the opportunity to pastor some amazing young people and I have in the decade or so since then spent time reflecting on that season of ministry and thinking about the fruit of that ministry if I'm honest I, I live with some measure of regret over those years I loved the kids, I, I hauled them, it seemed like all over the country and invested my life into them. But I live with this haunting question, and I think it's a healthy question, of whether I gave them enough of Jesus, whether they graduated from my youth ministry understanding that Jesus had done everything necessary for them, or, or was I caught up? Was I bogged down trying to make them into good people? Did I preach? behavior, and morality rather than Christ crucified? Did I teach them and did I model for them finding all of who we are in what Jesus has done and in serving him and in living for him? Or did I make them a slightly cleaner and more spiritual version of their peers? Tough questions. Think about how Jesus' words impact those of us who are parents. One day when I'm dead and gone, will my kids, when they're asked about their dad, say that I pointed them to Jesus, to love Jesus? Will my kids say that I showed them the same grace that God has shown me? Will my kids one day love the church? Do I live my life in a way? Do I talk about the church, in a way that conveys to my kids that it is the single most beautiful, precious, and important gathering on the planet. These are uncomfortable conversations for a pastor. Now there's an argument to be made here that Jesus' words in our text when he talks about little ones is not only about children, but in context he's talking about all around us, all in our circle of influence, all who are vulnerable and impacted by us. And so I ask you this morning, how does your life impact those around you? What do the vulnerable, the impressionable around us learn from us? What do they hear from us? What is of most importance? If they listen to our conversations and they look at the way that we live our lives, what are we worshiping? I never promised today would be comfortable. How is your life impacting others? Second area in Jesus' uncomfortable conversation is found in 43, verses 43 through 47. And it poses this question for us. What do you need to cut off or to gouge out for the sake of your soul and for the sake of those that you influence? We can't miss the broad sweeping significance of this triad of verses 43, 45, 47. Jesus uses the example of the hand and the foot and the eyes to be all-inclusive, to refer to our battle against all areas of sin in what we do, in where we go, and in what we see. And the setting here is important. Jesus isn't Outstanding on a street corner preaching to pagans. He's in a room presumably surrounded by people who have some level of commitment to him, who identify as his disciples in that general sense of the word, a, a follower, someone who's learning from this rabbi. Jesus instructs these disciples to wage war against sin in their lives. You know, when I've heard these verses used in the past, it was often within the context of sexual or moral sin. That's how we usually hear them presented. A very early theologian, some of you are familiar with him by the name of Origen, was studying these words as found in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 19, but the same words. And he was so convicted and he was so moved by these words, by Jesus' command to cut off or to pluck out, that he went to a physician to have himself emasculated. That's not the context, I hate to tell this to Origen, that's not the context within which Jesus presents this teaching in Mark's gospel. He's not talking specifically about moral sin. Jesus gives this warning, this rebuke, this word of conviction, not for moral or sexual sin, but for really the sin of pride. It's for the sin of striving to be the greatest at the expense of unity with others. It's for the sin of gatekeeping, which is really just another form of self-worship, of thinking that my way is the only way, that if someone doesn't meet my standard, then they certainly don't meet God's standard either. Pride. These words become much more painful, don't they? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. In other words, wage war against sin in your life. Wage war against your own pride. I think we would all agree that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He's not literally advocating for you to dismember yourself. We just don't see that doctrine supported anywhere else in Scripture. Something that considerable, if Jesus literally meant it to happen that way, something that considerable would certainly have more biblical support or precedent. But just because Jesus isn't speaking literally doesn't mean that he's not serious. Sin, and especially the sin of pride, is the greatest enemy of your soul. It's deceiving, it's intoxicating, it's cancerous, it's deadly. In in this room of disciples and students, and really in this room of the future leaders of the church, Jesus simply says, fight against sin or it will destroy you. Wage war against your sin or it will lead you to hell. And this brings us back to that valley outside of Jerusalem, the imagery of the wrath of God against sin and rebellion. We don't like to wrestle with the reality of hell much in the modern church, but notice that the threefold refrain in 43 through 47, that it's better to cut off or to pluck out than to be thrown into hell. And then we see Jesus' description of hell, as he quotes the prophet Isaiah, where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. That word worm might better be translated as maggot. It's as if, Jesus says, remember that valley outside of Jerusalem, where animal carcasses and trash... Our throne where flies abound, where maggots crawl amid rotting flesh. This is the imagery of what becomes of those who give themselves over to sin. It's important to notice how Jesus describes hell as unquenchable fire. The Greek word, this is kind of interesting, the Greek word that Mark uses in verse 43 is the word asbestos. Which of course we know as a building material that was common at one time because of one particular property that it had that it wouldn't burn up, that it could sit in the hot fire and not be consumed. That's the horrible picture that Jesus paints of those who give themselves over to sin. You know, many attempts have been made to downplay, to eliminate the biblical reality of hell, but unfortunately. For those trying to rewrite Scripture, almost every time it shows up in the New Testament, it's from the lips of Jesus. If we don't believe Jesus, we can go to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66. Jesus is making a a clear and obvious statement about the danger of our sin. What do we need to, to cut off? What do we need to gouge out for the sake of our soul? For the sake of those who are influenced by us. What sin do you need to repent of? What is God calling you to turn over to him today? What is it that's fueling your pride? Pride is a cancer. It never goes away unless it's cut out. And pride always, and this is why Jesus hammers on it, pride always results in you being distanced from God and from others. And the particularly painful thing about pride is that while you're indulging it, you don't even know it. Your inner lawyer works overtime to justify your prideful actions, your prideful heart. It's true. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Cut it off. Gouge it out. The final set of teaching in our text for today that I want you to wrestle with is, I think, summed up by this question. Have you considered the cost of following Jesus? Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. That's not an encouraging verse. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. You can kind of see the nature of this collection of sayings, of oral tradition. Jesus continues with this sort of transitional statement, everyone will be salted with fire. It connects what's before it with what's after it, but what does it mean? This is sacrificial language we could look at Leviticus chapter 2 if you're a note taker Leviticus chapter 2 Numbers chapter 18 see the greater context of what Jesus is saying here but this is language that reminds us that to follow Jesus can never be viewed following Jesus is never viewed in that that Joel Osteen live your best life now sort of way quite the opposite is true to follow Jesus means that you deny yourself. He just said that, right? That you deny your best life. To use Paul's language in Romans 12, it means that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, signing over the title of our lives for his purpose, for his service. Jesus is calling his disciples disciples. In this room, those who are following him, he's calling them to deeper commitment, to deeper abandonment of self, to depend more completely, more wholly on him. Following Jesus is costly. We don't understand that very well in America. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world certainly do. Following Jesus often means that we set aside much for the sake of him and his kingdom. Verses 49 and 50 can be tough to wrap our minds around, but there's beautiful truth found here. Just like Jesus' disciples, we will experience suffering and trials, but it is those times of suffering, those trials in our life that sanctify us that set us apart for his use, for his purposes, to make us more like Christ. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 67. This is a verse that you would do well to commit to memory, to write it down, to spend some time meditating. Psalm 119, verse 67. Listen to this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Before I suffered, before I was afflicted, before I was tested by fire, I went astray. I wandered away. But now that I've been afflicted, now that I've experienced some suffering, I keep your word, the psalmist says. Suffering is a powerful tool in the hand of a good God. Remember those words, you are good and you do good. That's in the context of being afflicted. You see, we can fight against our sin because because our fight isn't alone. We can wage war against our pride and all the other sin in our lives because Jesus is at work. He's ordaining our circumstances, including our suffering, for our good, for his glory. And and so we're free to offer ourselves up to the Lord, to trust in his goodness because he is good and he does good. I, I don't know where each of you are at today. Some of you are still kind of wrestling with my description of hell from earlier, of the idea of God's wrath against sin and against wickedness. If that's you today, there is good news. Jesus took our place. That Jesus bore the wrath of God For you in your place that you might live with him with the promise of salvation. Or as Jesus himself so helpfully said that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The grave and even hell itself have no power over the conquering king. And so we trust in Jesus for our salvation and we receive the promise of paradise. Others this morning might be wrestling with that cost of discipleship, with the intensity of Jesus' words, with the reality that Jesus was speaking these words to those who were following him, not to pagans from the street corner. Maybe Jesus is calling you deeper, calling you to step out in faith, calling you to deny yourself, to serve in some deeper way calling you to quit making excuses, to quit your prideful ladder climbing, to submit, to serve him in some deeper way. It hurts, I I get it. But he's good, and he does good. Take that step. Follow the Lord's leading stop, denying him. Instead, deny yourself. Some of you this morning might just feel trapped by your sin. Like you've been fighting against it, but you can't escape. Child of God, Jesus has defeated the evil one. And while he still rages for a season, his defeat is sure and his defeat is absolute. James chapter 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Some of you need To confess your sin this week you need to hear those words as someone looks you in the eye and declares the promise of God's forgiveness to you stop by and see me this week confess your sin ask for the Lord's healing and help Satan is going to distract you and convince you that it's not really that bad and it's not really that urgent don't listen Confess your sin. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Find freedom in the gospel. Jesus doesn't talk about hell in this text to scare his disciples or to threaten them, but because he loves them. The same is true for you. He is good. And he does good. So we turn to him, we run to him, he Has made full satisfaction for all of your sin. You are His. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good and you do good. Lord, we ask that you would convince us once again today of the the seriousness of our sin, of the reality of your wrath against rebellion. Lord, may that reality create within us a sense of urgency, an urgency to get right with you, an urgency to confess our sin, and and especially an urgency for our neighbors to know you. Lord, I pray for those who need to, to turn from their sin this morning, to turn to your mercy. I pray that they wouldn't be able to sleep tonight. I pray that those who are finding their identity in ladder climbing or in gatekeeping would be knocked off the ladder. I pray that those who are captive to sin, who feel the shackles this morning, would find freedom and peace in the gospel and in what you have accomplished for them. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace to sinners because it is our only hope. Jesus, we need you. We need you more each day. You are our only hope. I thank you that you have saved me from hell. i have given me the promise of eternal life. And I pray that each one here can pray that very prayer this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.